conference. I think uh, you better bought that uh, material uploaded last night. So the last topic, you can have a glance if you have any uh, 15 points are enumerated. They are very easy to read. Once you read it twice, you will be able to answer two types of questions. Number one, what are the problems faced by parliament and course of its functioning? Second, how to better the functioning of parliament? So what are the reforms within the insights regarding the functioning of parliament? So let's now, since uh, things are very clearly enumerated, let's not touch on that topic. Let's move on to the next topic. Part 5, chapter 4. Union Judicial. If you are asked to identify the most powerful judicial institution of the entire world, the most powerful judicial institution of the entire world. Indian Supreme Court. International Court of Justice. You see, no international institution is more powerful than the power which is willing to be parted with by the member countries. That is, that is the, you know, the crisis of any international organization. Not even UN is that powerful. We are aware. Any international institution for that matter is only powerful to that extent that the member country is willing to pass some powers to it. So ICJ is not that powerful a body. Of course, it has legitimacy when it comes to international conflicts. It's more about the moral perceptions associated with ICJ than about its binding nature. So, what would be the most, which could be identified as the most powerful judicial institution of the entire world? I think you are yet to come out of that morning that perhaps. Why did you say Supreme Court of India? What would be the reason? The, the kind of powers. Rights belong to individuals. Powers. Powers are associated with institutions. Apart from that, going beyond that. Supreme Court is powerful. Be it India, be it the United States. Everywhere it's powerful. <coughs> yes, in American Supreme Court, what you say is correct. Uh, 
federal questions are appealed before American Supreme Court. I think the state is very limited. But don't you think that there they do have due process principle which makes the Supreme Court enormously powerful? Isn't it? But there it is written in explicit terms. Here it is amorphous. How do you get to that point? Constitution itself approves them. Don't you think that that shows the power of India's Supreme Court? That even though Constitution says the other way, the court by interpretation infused due process principle into the text of the Constitution, which was not apparent. So that talks more about the power of the court, isn't it? In the context of America, it is well written in the Constitution. In the context of India, it was alien to the Constitution when it comes to the textual content. So that shows more about that exhibits the power of the Supreme Court. Well, it's all about how you are taking that issue, the dimension which you are taking, that's all. That can change the outcome of the discourse. So, the most powerful judicial institution of the world, truly speaking, is Supreme Court of India on account of numerous tangible reasons. We are examining them. We are also examining the distinct features of India's apex court. First of all, in, in America, there exists a federal Supreme Court, and every state has its Supreme Court. In America, there they do have what is known as parallel judicial, and the jurisdiction of American Supreme Court is very limited. As an appeal court, it can hear only the cases pertaining to federal law, not state laws. Every state is supreme to the extent that it has its Supreme Court. Federal Supreme Court is supreme to the extent that it is federal. That's all. Whereas in India, we do have an integrated judicial with Supreme Court at the apex. It begins with trial courts at the grassroots level. Trial courts means civil courts to deal with civil cases and magistrate courts to deal with criminal cases. At the district level, you will find some states it's known as municipal courts. These civil courts are known as municipal courts in some states. On the top of that, you have district courts to deal with civil appeals and some civil cases can be tried by the district court and sessions courts or what is known as court of session to deal with criminal appeals as well as certain criminal offenses are triable by the sessions court. Sessions court in simple terms means district level criminal court. 
like murder, rape, such offenses are tried by the court of session or what is known as session court, sessions court. So at the district level, you have district court and sessions court, session courts, sessions courts, district courts and sessions courts, then high courts and supreme court. High courts and supreme court, as you are aware, are known as superior courts and court in high courts are known as subordinate courts. So in India, we have a unified judicial with Supreme Court sitting at the apex of the judicial pyramid, having, having direct jurisdiction over all courts and tribunals in the territory of India. Some of you may be able to perhaps recall what happened in 2015. Dr. Manmohan Singh, after demitting his office in 2014, uh, he was summoned by a special court in Delhi, a special CBI court. See, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not the CBI court, special court dealing with Prevention of Corruption Act cases. Under Prevention of Corruption Act 1988, the courts which are trying such offenses are special courts only. Judges are senior judges who are otherwise district level judges. So Dr. Manmohan Singh was summoned by a sessions court in Delhi and he was summoned in relation to allocation of all blocks in the state of Orissa and he did not go before the trial court nor he challenged the summons summons means the order requiring the person to appear before it he did not challenge it before Delhi High Court instead he went to Supreme Court directly the least court of the land that is the trial court summoned Dr. Manmohan Singh. He challenged the summons before the last court of the land and Supreme Court admitted the petition in 2015 and stayed the operation of the summons. So Supreme Court under Article 136 of the Constitution has direct jurisdiction over all courts and tribunals in the territory of India. That means even a trial court order can be challenged directly before Supreme Court, even though it is for the Supreme Court to decide as to whether they should interfere or not. It's a discretionary power, but still, such a thing could not have happened in the United States. Whereas there exists parallel judiciary. On the other hand, in India, Supreme Court has direct jurisdiction over all courts and tribunals in the territory of our country. So jurisdiction wise, our Supreme Court is far, far more powerful than American Supreme Court. That does not mean that American Supreme Court is powerless, the most, uh, you know, celebrated uh, development in the relationship between judiciary and legislature that happened in United States only. The very concept of judicial review of legislation that originated in the American Supreme Court. In the early 19th century, in a case titled 
Marbury versus Madison. American Supreme Court, for the first time by any court of the world, declared that it has the power to declare to strike down a law enacted by the legislature. So the very concept of judicial review of legislation originated in American Supreme Court. So historically it's very very relevant. Well, we are discussing the distinct features of India's apex force. Secondly, India is the only country where judges appoint themselves through the process, through an institution called the collegium. You need not write judges appoint themselves. It was a casual expression to uh, get connected. So, India is the only country where judiciary plays the most important role, the most determinative role as to who shall be appointed as uh, judges of superior courts. You won't find such a phenomenon anywhere in the world. In the United States, it is for the president to decide as to who shall be appointed as judges. The constitution does not prescribe any eligibility criteria. It was all left to the president. Anybody can be appointed as a judge of American Supreme Court. Even though, yes, checks and balances are there, American Senate is required to confirm the nomination of president. Usually, confirmation hearing is conducted. But as a matter of practice, as a matter of practice, presidential nominee is confirmed by Senate. In the last these many hundreds of years of their constitutional existence, that is from 1787 onwards, only 12 to 13 times American Senate rejected, outrightly rejected the nomination made by the president. So in America, president plays the most important role in deciding as to who shall be appointed as judges. Of course, it uh, demonstrates to what extent constitution exhibited confidence in the persona called president, in the office of president. The more the constitution uh, trusted its leaders or its political representatives, the less would be its strength. So the scheme of American constitution was that embodiment of trust that was very much apparent. On the other hand, in India, if you go textually, to begin with, President played, that is central government played, the most important role in deciding as to who shall be appointed as judges. However, in 1993, by way of a judicial pronouncement, Supreme Court took on to itself the power of avoiding judges, you won't find such a phenomenon anywhere in the world that makes India's Supreme Court extremely powerful. And even a consultative mechanism was devised in the sense that whatever leeway would have been available otherwise to the executive got severely curtailed on account of the scheme devised by the Supreme Court as a result of which 
from judiciary proposals emanate proposals commence but ultimately even though the file will go to the executive but ultimately judiciary will decide as to who shall be appointed as judges so just an uh, intermediary role was given to the executive by way of this judgment judiciary appointing the member of members of judges of superior courts is something you won't find anywhere extremely powerful is our court regarding the appointment of judges likewise there is a provision in our constitution which you won't find in any other constitution of the world which makes our supreme court exceptional that is the power of supreme court under article 142 of the constitution to pass any order to provide complete justice to the parties in a cause or matter before it the power to pass any order to provide complete justice to the parties before it interestingly the conception of complete justice what is complete in a given case itself is a subjective determination of supreme court ideally this power is to be exercised in such a way if required that itself is the discretion of the court the power is to be exercised in such a way that where there is a vacuum in law where there is an absence of written law which results in denial of justice to somebody court can fill that vacuum by passing judicial order so that the litigant will not be denied justice vishaka judgment of 1997 vishaka versus union of india is regarded as a classic case of the exercise of power under article 142 when supreme court found that its repeated directions to central government to introduce a bill in parliament to prevent sexual harassment of women at workplace when it was when it fell in deaf ears finding no way out supreme court issued a set of guidelines and declared that till parliament enacts law these guidelines will be the law of the land so when court found itself in a very sticky situation constitution says that court is the custodian of part 3 that is its power under article 32 fundamental rights are to be ensured so when litigants come before it citing sexual harassment at workplace court was not in a position again and again to deny them justice telling that sorry there is no law enacted by parliament so in spite of its repeated directions when nothing was done court issued a set of guidelines and declared that till parliament enacts law these guidelines will remain the law of the land so supreme court's vishakha guidelines is regarded as judicial legislation 
legislature is to enact law, but here judiciary was compelled to bring in law by way of invoking Article 142 of the Constitution, the power to do complete justice. I remember a speech delivered by today's Attorney General over a decade back in Delhi and in course of his lecture, he made specific reference to Article 142 in his memorable words which I would vaguely uh, recall in his, in his memorable words. Supreme Court of India undertook a journey of judicial activism since 1980s in a manner for which there is no parallel in any modern democratic country. So Supreme Court embarked on a journey of judicial activism unparalleled in the history of modern democracy since 1980s. And in course of such memorable journey, the court consistently relied upon Article 142 as a league, as a veritable Kamadenu. Kamadenu is the political cow which fulfills the desires of people. Article 142 was staunchly relied upon by Supreme Court as that magic band by which justice can be given to the people. And ideally, as I told you, when there is an absence of law, the court has the power in a given case, in a given case, to pass an order to fill that vacuum. However, in practice, many a time, court went beyond, Supreme Court went beyond what is written in law to provide justice by way of transgressing even statutory provisions so that justice will be completely given to a party in a case. Ideally, where there is a parliamentary law, the court is not supposed to violate that statutory provision. But in practice, many a time, court went beyond the written law to provide justice to somebody who was needy. For example, in Babari Masjid demolition case, L.K. Advani was to stand trial before Sessions Court as well as Magistrate Court. A set of cases were to be tried by Sessions Judge. A set of other cases were to be tried by Magistrate Court. However, when the court found that even after decades, due to one reason or another, Mr. Adwani was not standing for trial in these criminal cases, by an unusual order passed under Article 142, court directed that these two sets of cases to be clubbed and be tried by the Sessions Court at Faisalabad in, in an expeditious manner. So, Code of Criminal Procedure prescribes as to what offences are tribal by magistrate courts, what offences are tribal by sessions courts. Here, getting over these statutory prescriptions, court clubbed two sets of offences, two sets of cases in fact, which enumerated various offences. They were required to be tried by the sessions court so that justice will be given to the parties. This is controversial, such type of exercise of power. Whatever is stated in the written law gets transgressed in a particular case. 
so that justice will be given to the parties. Naturally, Article 142 is viewed as, it is perceived as an instrument of substantive justice. When procedure comes to a dead end, when procedure, what is prescribed in the procedure is not giving justice to a person in a rare but a given case, the court can go beyond procedure so that justice will be given to a body. For example, Subrata Roy, he was to pay 20,000 crore to his shareholders, shareholders of his company. That money was not being paid in spite of the repeated directions of Supreme Court. Then Supreme Court summoned him, asked him to appear before the court. But hallucinating in his own cocoon of delusion, of money, power and so forth, he didn't bother to pay any attention to the court summons. Then Supreme Court issued non-bailable arrest warrant to get hold of. First, bailable arrest warrant was issued. Even then, he was not appearing. Non-bailable arrest warrant was issued to get hold of him. He was arrested by UP police and he was produced before Supreme Court. And under Contempt of Courts Act 1972, Contempt of Supreme Court is a bailable offence. So if you are willfully violating an order of Supreme Court, then once you are arrested and produced, you have to be given bail. That is a bailable offence. But in this case, in spite of the most monumental lawyers of our country like Ramjad Malani, we are standing in defence of him. But still, when the order was passed, Supreme Court decided to detain him. The court did not grant him bail. Beyond that, under Contempt of Courts Act, the maximum punishment for Contempt of Supreme Court, that is six months of imprisonment, simple imprisonment, six months. There is a difference between simple imprisonment and rigorous imprisonment. Rigorous means where you are supposed to do labor as well. So six months of simple imprisonment is a maximum sentence under Contempt of Courts Act. And that is a bailable offence. In spite of all these, Supreme Court passed the order directing his detention indefinitely till he complied with the order of the court. So Ramjat Malani was standing in defence of him. He told at the face of the court that conduct of Supreme Court is a bailable offence. The law of this land is to give bail, not to show jail. So, you can't exceed your powers, you are exceeding your jurisdiction, was what was alleged by Ramjan Malani. So, Supreme Court retorted saying that they define their jurisdiction. And Subhradaroi was directly detained indefinitely till he completely complied with the order of the court. And most interestingly, the order was passed by specifically invoking. Article 142 of the Constitution. In other words, what apparently is seen illegal became legal by way of Article 142 on account of the conviction of Supreme Court that if he is not detained indefinitely, justice will not be given to the parties. So, ideally,
where there is written law, the court is not supposed to pass order going beyond what is stated. But there are numerous cases wherein court went beyond the limits of law to provide justice to a party before it. So it makes India Supreme Court exceptionally powerful. You can have a question in your main examination as to what do you mean by power to do complete justice, critically examined. So the question is specifically about Article 142. Critically examine the power to do complete justice. In fact, the power to do complete justice is a plenary power. Plenary power means there is no power beyond the Supreme Court to regulate that power. That power is inherent in the court. It is given under Article 142. It is latent in the institution called the Supreme Court. Because the power is given by the Constitution, Supreme Court occasionally takes this view and repeating, because this power is given by the Constitution, Supreme Court occasionally exhibits its view in its judgment that no law enacted by Parliament can be a factor on the special power of Supreme Court under Article 142. Since Constitution gave this power, no statutory law can limit the power of Supreme Court under Article 142. So, 142 empowers Supreme Court to act as the true sentinel, the powerful sentinel of justice. Then comes Article 141 of the Constitution, which says that the law declared by Supreme Court is binding on all courts in the territory of India. It says that the law declared by Supreme Court is binding on all courts in the territory of India. Some of you may have this thought. Who is Supreme Court to declare law? Law is to be made by legislature, isn't it? But the provision is very clear. The law declared. For understanding this expression declaration, you must be aware that India is a common law country. A common law country is a country which follows British legal principles and practices. Most countries of the world, on the other hand, are civil law countries. Most European countries like France, Germany, most countries of Africa, most countries of Latin America, they are civil law countries. Britain, India, United States, Australia, Canada, these are all common law countries. A common law country is a country which follows British legal principles and practices, as I told you. As per British tradition, the judgments passed by superior courts are binding law on other courts. What is known as the doctrine of stare decisis. So, till a 15 judge bench overrules basic structure doctrine, basic structure doctrine will be the law of the land. So, here in India, what is known as case laws means legal principles enshrined in the judgments of Supreme Court and High Courts. 
they are as good as yours. Whereas, on the other hand, in a civil law country, statutes are somewhat in a detailed form and courts are not bound by previous judgments. As a result of which, if court does not want to look at the judgment, it can cast a fresh glance at the statute and it can take its decision afresh. Whereas in India, courts are bound by the law declared by Supreme Court. For example, if you go France, if you ask them, where is your law of right to information? French people will show you a statute, a book. If you come, once you come India, ask, where is law of right to information? You will be first shown constitution. Because Supreme Court only declared that right to information is a fundamental right. Then you will be shown right to information act, a thin book. Then you will be shown a body of judgments passed by Supreme Court. That is also part of law of right to information. For example, if you went to UPSC in 2006 or 2007 or 2008, the years immediately followed the enactment of RTA. And if you, yeah, if you went UPSC and asked the details of your ancestry, UPSC would have denied the same, telling that, sorry, it doesn't come under the purview of Right to Information Act. If you go today, UPSC won't be giving you a blanket denial due to the reason that what had not been part of Right to Information Act subsequently became part of Right to Information Act on account of a Supreme Court judgment in between. Supreme Court two years back, in, in quite a few cases, ruled that ancestors of students, they also come under Right to Information Act. So, in a common law country, judiciary can broaden the frontiers of statutes, can expand the frontiers of statutes. And, moreover, India is a country having these many states and these many union territories. The law declared by Supreme Court is binding on all courts means it ensures the singularity of law. The legal principles, perhaps what is being considered is a statute in Uttar Pradesh. However, a legal principle declared by Supreme Court in relation to a statute in Tamil Nadu or Kerala will be applicable in relation to the statute in UP. The law declared by Supreme Court is binding on all courts means that ensures the singularity of law in the vast territory of India. Likewise, yeah, let me tell you an observation made by Supreme Court in Keshavananda Bharati judgment. The court, uh, one of the judges of the bench observed in the judgment that fundamental rights are empty vessels having no fixed meaning. It is for every generation to pour forth flesh and blood to those empty vessels in the light of its generational experience. How profound a concept, isn't it? Fundamental rights are hollow vessels having no fixed meaning. Every generation will have to discover 
its own meaning and attribute to those empty vessels. So who will do it? Judiciary will do it on behalf of Hindu. In other words, in a common law country, judiciary would infuse life to statutes which would otherwise become redundant by way of passage of time. For example, Supreme Court judgment in Navadej Singh Johar case, that is decriminalization of homosexuality, section 377 of Indian Penal Code was interpreted in such a way that consensual homosexual relationship will not be a penal offense. A few years back, it was a penal offense. So the relevant provision was interpreted and read down. Read down means the court diluting the scope of that provision in the light of a new constitutional reading. So statutes will remain alive without necessitating frequent amendments by way of judicial interpretation. So the law declared by Supreme Court shall be binding on all courts in the territory of India and be aware the expression declaration here it highlights the creative role performed by Supreme Court the creative role of Supreme Court in furthering the body of law that is the meaning of the expression declared the law declared means declaration by way of creative interpretation so creatively the court interprets and legal principles are declared by it. Likewise, I'll address, let me complete topic. Likewise, under Article 144 of the Constitution, it says that all civil and judicial authorities in the territory of India shall act in aid of Supreme Court. Article 144. All civil and judicial authorities in the territory of India shall act in aid of Supreme Court. Nowhere in the constitution you will find such a prescription. Nowhere it is written that all civil servants shall act as per the law enacted by Parliament. Nowhere it is written that all civil servants shall act as per the directions of central government. This is the only prescription that is supremacy of Supreme Court. All civil and judicial authorities shall act in aid of Supreme Court. The expression aid denotes that the court will work first passing the orders and others, other authorities shall follow it, enforcing its orders. Be aware that unlike executive, which has its enforcement wing, judiciary does not have an enforcement wing. Recognizing that Supreme Court, recognizing that the constitution stipulated that all civil and judicial authorities shall act in aid of Supreme Court. Constituent Assembly thought that if there is no such provision, Supreme Court orders, judgments may not be implemented. So all civil and all judicial authorities, they are to act as 
the arms of the court in implementing its orders. You may keep in mind a judgment of Supreme Court titled Dhananjaya versus Vasudeva. This case remains significant for every civil services aspirant, aspirant into the reason that for the first time an IAS officer had to go to jail on account of a Supreme Court order which was passed in this case. For the first time an honest civil servant had to serve a jail term for violating the order of Supreme Court. Dhananjaya was a person who was working as uh, an engineer with Bangalore Corporation. He was some he was having some job related dispute. He finally appealed before Supreme Court. Supreme Court allowed his appeal and directed that he be promoted to the post of the chief engineer of Bangalore Corporation and he was not promoted by some unknown reason, maybe political interference. And finally, Dhananjaya filed a contempt petition against Vasudeva, who happened to be the departmental secretary of the time, concerned department was uh, led by Vasudeva, secretary of the department. And Supreme Court finding him culpable, sentenced him for one month imprisonment. And he was a person of exceptional character and uh, uh, honesty. Devagoda was the chief minister at that time. Maybe politicians tried to meddle with the process. Devagoda rushed to Delhi. He stayed here for one week to see whether this honest officer can be prevented from going to jail. But he was of no avail. He had to suffer one month jail term there at Bangalore Central Jail. So all civil and all judicial authorities shall act as the arms of the court. So the foremost obligation of, an, of every civil servant is to comply with the directions of Supreme Court. That is the prescription of the constitution. All directions given by administrative authorities all would be subsidiary to the direction given by Supreme Court. That is, recently you are seeing a large number of contempt cases getting filed in Supreme Court against uh, civil servants like Calcutta Police Commissioner, Interim CBA Director. When it came to the case of Interim CBA Director, Nageshwara Rao, Chief Justice told him bluntly that politicians are not your boss, law is your real boss, so you have to pay deference to law. In Rajiv Kumar's case, even before the Supreme Court observation which came recently, as was as you may have read in newspapers, I used to tell our students in the uh, class that this is going to be a very serious issue. If the court, if the allegation leveled by the CBI 
Now CBA, I think, uh, as was reported, some group was also submitted. Means, Rajiv Kumar, Calcutta Police Commissioner, tampered with the telephone records, all records of Sudeep Prosen, who had been apprehended in Jammu. He happens to be the mastermind of the scam, chit fund scam. So he was apprehended in Jammu and the service providers provided, handed over the details of the call records of Sudeep Tosen. Perhaps he might have conversation with top political leaders and all. CBI alleged that when CBI independently accessed these call records from service providers, the call records given by service providers were at variance with the call record given by records given by Rajiv Kumar after Supreme Court directed handing over of the case from special investigation team of Calcutta Police to CBI. So if he tampered with call records, that's going to be a very, very serious offense. So later Supreme Court recently after examining the documents kept on the file of the court, observed that this is going to be an extremely serious issue. So, this we are, herein lies the relevance of Article 144. We are currently seeing a spate of cases, be it Rajiv Kumar, be it Nageshwar Rao, the unwillingness on the part of the bureaucrats to comply with the legal orders passed by, orders passed by the highest court of the land. So here lies the significance of Article 144. All civil and judicial authorities shall act in aid of Supreme Court. No politician will come to the rescue if such an issue reaches court. Ultimately, the officer will be sacrificed. Then comes basic structure doctrine. That also makes Indian Supreme Court exceptionally powerful. In Keshavananda Bharati case, the court ruled that, well, parliament can amend the provisions of the constitution. In whatever way you like, you can do it. You have the power, but don't touch the base. But what all constitute the base was not conclusively catalogued by Supreme Court. As a result of which, what is not part of the base today can become the part of base tomorrow. On that basis, a constitution amendment bill, amendment act can be invalidated. Who will decide which would be a new feature that court alone will decide. So, though it's a case of circular logic, it cannot be easily justified or defended. But actually, it kept a lot of powers with Supreme Court. A reservoir of undefined power. What is not part of basic structure today can be declared as part of basic structure tomorrow and on that basis a constitution amendment can be struck down. So on account of all these reasons, India's Supreme Court could be regarded as the most powerful institution, judicial institution of the world and uh, you can also make reference to these points while answering general questions on India's Supreme Court or judiciary to highlight the efficacy of our judicial system. 
highlight the power of our judicial system. Yes, if you have any query about whatever we have discussed, please. I will discuss jurisdiction. Section 66A was invalidated in Sraya Singhore case. Thereafter, IT Act does not have the provision. So, whatever is being, if Section 66A is invoked, that means you are invoking something which is not there in the statute. It's not the violation of Supreme Court order. What they are doing is illegal. Supreme Court's interference is not required, otherwise, also. Police authorities or even uh, the concerned department can take uh, steps uh, to punish such officials. Whatever is not in law, how can it be the basis of uh, registering FIR and all? Maybe due to lack of awareness. Yes, any other question? Yes. Can it be the example of judicial overreach? What does it mean by overreach? How is it different from different from activism? Well, before that, you are referring to which as the example of judicial overreach? Idiot. Okay, so it's a new case. Liquor ban in Bihar. <laughs> sale of sale of liquor yeah, on state and national highways. <laughs> you see, let me first differentiate between activism and overreach. Then I'll answer your query. Judicial activism refers to that phenomenon of judicially going beyond the domain of passive adjudication to step into the shoes of executive or legislature to provide, to uphold rule of law and to render justice to the people. So executive is to implement law Executive is to formulate policies and legislature is to enact law. So when the court going beyond its domain, its job as adjudicator, adjudication is a passive job in the sense that ideally in administration you will see timbers raising, uh, people involved will be getting angry and all. A lot of politics is there. Whereas when it comes to judicial proceedings, relying on reason, you will find in a very cool-headed manner, things would get dispassionately adjudicated. 
What is a third authority? It's neither involved, it's not involved anywhere. It's not attached anywhere. So adjudication is viewed as a passive job in the sense that whatever is correct would be ruled. So activism refers to the situation where court goes beyond its domain of passive adjudication so as to enter into the domain allotted to executive or legislature by way of passing orders pertaining to the domains of the other two agencies. At times when government becomes consistently apathetic and inactive, the custodian of part 3, since it cannot remain a powerless custodian, may pass order directing these agencies to act or certain formal policies can be required to be reformulated in such a way that fundamental rights would not get affected. In Vishaka case, you saw a judicial legislation. So activism at times is the need of the hour in a developing country like ours when executive and legislature when they become insensitive to the needs of the people who are protected under part 3, activism is the only relief which is available to the poor citizen. So activism as such is at times welcome sir, in the sense that for short term activism may be good and necessary, but in long term if it becomes a constant feature of a political or a constitutional system, it would affect the fabric of separation of powers. Legislature and executive would become redundant if there is court to undertake all these roles. So in short term, it may be a necessity or an imperative to provide justice to the people. In long term, if it becomes a daily phenomenon, then it would affect the very fabric of our constitution. Uh, so activism as such, is not negative. However, if you take a rubber band, if you stretch it, there will be a brittle point. If you stretch it beyond that, that will get broken. So, overreach is perceived as that state of affairs wherein judicially ends up in passing order which it ought not have passed on account of either unwillingness of the other parties, other agencies to respect that order or on account of the difficulty in implementing such orders. Yeah, liquor ban on uh, ban on the sale of liquor on national and state highways that is perceived as a case of judicial overreach. Uh, my personal view is different. However, the court subsequently diluted its orders apparently on account of its recognition that there was some fault in the original order. So it was very much liberal uh, in a, by way of its subsequent orders. So activism beyond limits may result in overreach wherein court orders may not remain respected or they may remain unimplemented. Supreme Court judgment in Shabarimala case is perceived by many as a case of judicial overreach due to the reason that when constitution itself protects right to religion, so religion itself is endowed with some autonomy. Yesterday, Supreme Court uh, issued a notice of a petition 
wherein a similar demand was raised in relation to most maps. So the this was a different bench. And judges, I don't know what you might have read in today's newspaper. I couldn't read it today. And uh, how it got reported also, I don't know. But one thing is very clear. The judge, the bench made it very clear that look, this case is being admitted only on account of Shabirimala judgment. Otherwise, this does not deserve even to be considered by the court. A place of worship is a non-state agency. So, religion has its canons. We can't make any such prescription. State has nothing to do with it, was the view of the bench. But because India is a common law country, because Supreme Court judgment was surrendered by a constitution bench, that five-judge bench decision is binding on the bench which heard the case which happened to be a two-judge bench. So naturally, the court decided to hear it. They can differ with the view. Ultimately, in that case, the case will be referred to a larger bench. So, Shabirimala judgment, it is perceived as a case of activism by many, a bona fide decision. However, it is viewed by many as case of judicial overreach. By way of this example, I also wanted to communicate to you that whether a decision is an example of activism of, or overreach, that is also the subjective view of the one who looks at it. Beauty lies in the eyes of the beholder. So in a given case, for somebody, it's activism. For somebody else, it's overreach. But there can be an objective uh, definition of overreach also, apart from this. When judgment is too difficult to be implemented, given the economic, political and other constraints, uh, there will why is this question whether court ought to have passed this order? For example, in 2002, Supreme Court, in what is known as All India Judges Association case, ordered that the judge population ratio of our country be increased from 15 to 15, a threefold increase that to within a span of five years. This is 2019, 2002. 2012-2019, 17 years passed, death population ratio remains the same even today. There is no difference. It's not that easy. Court cannot, by an order, bring such change. You need to have money with you. For appointing a judge, you need to have 10 employees. You need to have courtroom. You need to have all paraphernalia. It's not about giving salary to a person. So, the court should have thought about the financial viability of such a plan before giving such a direction. So that is perceived as a case of judicial overreach and liquor ban case is also perceived as a case of judicial overreach. Activism beyond the possibility of getting implemented, that can be regarded as overreach. And there may be also a situation or case wherein judiciary gets deeply into the domain of legislature and ends up passing order which is refused to be accepted by the other agency. What is known as Raja Rampal case due to paucity of time and not elaborated. Supreme Court gave direction to reinstate. A case came before Supreme Court in relation to some legislators who were expelled in 2007 for taking bribe for raising questions on the floor of parliament. 
So these people were summarily expelled. The one who got expelled, those people went to Supreme Court, telling that they were not heard before being expelled. Principles of natural justice got violated. The court was very much impressed. <laughs> court issued a notice to the speaker and chairman of the respective houses. The houses passed the resolutions asking their presiding officers not to accept the notice issued by the Supreme Court. As a result of this, court was itself in a dilemma. If court reinstates, then these people won't be able to enter parliament. Resolution was very clear. Resolutions were very clear. We know how to run our house. We don't need the advice of Supreme Court. So, Raja Rampal case as to how court issued notice and all, that is also an indication of, or that can also be regarded as an example of judicial overreach. Ultimately, court passed a compromise judgment without providing relief to the specific individuals who were before it. Well, I told you what is activism, I told you what is overreach, and liquor ban is perceived as a case of judicial overreach. My personal view is different. Whatever is widely perceived is this that it's a case of judicial overreach. Should we have a stringent constitution? Every constitution for that matter is stringent as to its fundamentals. So what do we mean? constitutional morality, how the court goes beyond what is written in the constitution in explicit terms by canvassing such amorphous concepts by way of which court expands its wings beyond the canopy of the constitution so that court becomes itself an institution of extreme power. Yes, that is uh, constitutional morality and all. Particularly constitutional morality is a concept which is very much criticized. You see, Prior to 2000, prior to uh, 2009, very quite only a few judgments of Supreme Court made reference to constitutional morality. Four or five judgments of this prior to 2009. But after 2009, during the period between 2009 uh, till 2017. 21 judgments of Supreme Court made reference to constitutional morality. In 2009, Delhi High Court passed what is known as Nas Foundation Judgment, that is decriminalization of homosexuality. In Nas Foundation case, Delhi High Court decriminalized homosexuality and Delhi High Court extensively used the expression constitutional morality and judicially even though the 2009 decision was set aside by Supreme Court in 2013, 
decriminalization of homosexuality was set aside by Supreme Court in 2013. However, the concept it attracted and inspired Supreme Court very much. As a result of which, you will find at least 21 times in 21 judgments the reference to constitutional morality. That means the term is gaining greater currency. In Shabarimala case, it was extensively, it was invoked. So, what is the morality of the constitution? Isn't it the subjective morality of the judges who belong to a particular economic and political class? So, what? how can you uh, assess, how can you determine morality of the constitution? Isn't it a vague concept? So, these things are being debated. Uh, however, in Shabrimala case, uh, constitutional morality was given a specific meaning. It's not used in a very vague manner. Article 25 and Article 26 talks about right to worship, right to freedom of religion. And 25 and 26, they say that subject to morality, that this right is to be exercised. So under Article 25, you will find subject to morality. Under Article 26, you find subject to morality. So, what is this morality? Is it social morality? Is it individual morality? Or is it what court called as constitutional morality? Constitution doesn't talk about constitutional morality. According to Justice Hindu Malhotra, constitutional morality is not the morality of Article 14 alone. It's also the morality of Article 25 and 26. You cannot have a reductionist view of what is constitutional morality. It's a collective morality of the entire document. So it is disputed. According to Supreme Court Shabarimala judgment, Article 14 exhibits what is inalienable to constitutional morality. So the use of the concept itself is debated. As of today, Shabarimala judgment is a law. So I wouldn't pass any observation against the judgment. Of course, it is being debated. says that transparency and accountability are the cornerstone of modern governance, tons of modern governance. But when it comes to its own case, citing confidentiality, the court refuses to partial information. I don't think RTA will be extended to collegium deliberations now, as what is exhibited by the body language of the court exhibits the reluctance of the court of court to allow proceedings to be too transparent. However, there is another side also to the story. Confidentiality in these proceedings, they are not that small an issue. Uh, you see, uh, a person who is being considered to be appointed as a judge of Supreme Court, he might be currently a high court judge. He, if he is found as not competent to be appointed as a judge of Supreme Court, and if the details of that deliberations, that is in public domain, just I am giving a small example. Court fears that if this is accessible to everybody, then the judge who may be having 5 or 10 years more in high court will fail to inspire the confidence of his court. There will be a maligning campaign against him. 
you want to be able to impartially and independently and fearlessly adjudicate. So there are certain things according to code. Should it be in public domain on account of its potential to initiate the decision making process and autonomy of the institution? But what I personally feel is this that there shall be a culture of transparency. Culture of transparency means in any country, when you are embracing values which are patently radical, transparency, transparency is not a Disney value, it certainly is a radical value. When you are embracing such a phenomenal change, there will be so many such transitional problems. I feel that let sunlight be the disinfectant. Once transparency becomes our culture, once we are able to bring a culture of transparency, then we will get perfectly aligned to the new system. So these are all transitional difficulties in greater interest. God should ensure that there is nothing to hide. So we, are, we have to move towards a new age. If you, if you get calcified into your present position, you won't be able to steer the rest of the country to a new future. Let's have a look at the jurisdiction of Supreme Court. Jurisdiction is likely a technical topic, however, an understanding of jurisdiction will enable you to understanding of jurisdiction will enable you to properly uh, comprehend. Supreme Court as well as Superior Judiciary, you will be able to answer any question on our Supreme Court. So let's have a look at the jurisdiction of Supreme Court. Slightly technical, but still it will be of great help. Supreme Court is a multi-jurisdictional court. And the diversity of the jurisdiction defines its powers. Supreme Court's jurisdiction can be classified or categorized into original jurisdiction, appellate jurisdiction, advisory jurisdiction, and Review jurisdiction, original, appellate, advisory, and review. Original jurisdiction means what is original to Supreme Court. For what purpose Supreme Court was originally created? What was its original job? What is original jurisdiction? What was its first purpose? Be aware that. Most aspects of original jurisdiction are exclusive to Supreme Court, except writ jurisdiction. So, original jurisdiction can be divided into writ jurisdiction, suit jurisdiction. Transfer jurisdiction. 
jurisdiction, suit jurisdiction, transfer jurisdiction, and election jurisdiction. Constitutional provisions may appear very dull and sterile, but if you are able to discover the life within every provision, it will become very much vivacious, it will be very much interesting. But if you refuse to feel the life which is there behind the text, then it will be completely monotonous. So let's have a look at Read jurisdiction first. Since part 3 was extensively taught to you, I will not be enumerating it in detail. However, let me show or let me throw a little light on the uh, red jurisdiction of Supreme Court. Under Article 32, Supreme Court has the power to pass, the power to issue writs or pass. Orders, including habeas corpus, mandamus, prohibition, certiorari, and co-arendo to enforce fundamental rights. You are aware of it. You are well aware of it. Earlier when I was enumerating the distinct powers of Supreme Court, at least some of you had this thought in your mind as to why Supreme Court is conferred with these many powers, like Article 142, Article 141, Article 144, these are all blowing provisions. Why the court is conferred with such exceptional powers? For understanding why that power is conferred, you need to have a look at Article, look at this jurisdiction, that is Article 32. A foreign scholar who extensively Researched and wrote on Supreme Court uh, in his book, wrote that the idealism of the Constituent Assembly got reflected in Part 3. Constituent Assembly was very much inspired by American Constitution, which conferred a set of inviolable fundamental rights to the people of their country. So, American Constitution inspired our Constituent Assembly which was comprised of people who remained enslaved for centuries. So the idealism of our constituent assembly that got reflected with all its purity and intensity in part 3 of the constitution. You won't find such life anywhere else in the constitution. Such is the intensity of part 3. You will find the idealism nowhere else in the constitution but under part 5, chapter 4, that is provisions pertaining to Supreme Court, like Article 141, Article 142, such provisions. How? Because Article 32 connected Supreme Court to part 3 by way of anointing it as the custodian of part 3, protector of part 3, as a result of which the idealism of part 3 oozed forth into the provisions pertaining to Supreme Court through this golden bridge called Article 32. So that is why you find Supreme Court extremely powerful 
as mentioned in the constitution. So herein lies the significance of red jurisdiction. What Supreme Court is today is primarily because of its special powers under Article 13. Supreme Court has the power to pass orders or writs in the nature of habeas corpus, mandamus, prohibition, certiorari, and covarento. In the nature of means the power of the court is not limited to these writs, these five writs. Supreme Court has the power to go beyond these writs in a given case if justice required. Five writs are mentioned in a given case. If these writs are not able to individually provide relief, Supreme Court can merge two writs to create a new writ. For example, a notification is challenged, notification by a government. It is the notification is required to be quashed. Sashiorari. And the petitioner might express his desire to see a new notification in the lines suggested by court. So two things have to be done. There is certiorari. At the same time, there shall be a direction as well. So that government will be compelled to bring a notification in the lines of the direction. Certiorari, mandamus. In a given case, if the court finds that certiorari and mandamus, they are not able to individually provide a single relief, then court can pass, court can issue what is known as, thank you, certiorarified mandamus. So that's a new bit. Certiorari and mandamus got fused and this thing came, certiorarified mandamus. So that a notification got quashed and government was given direction to issue a notification in the lines as prescribed by the court. So that is the power of the Supreme Court. Or if the court is of the view that it should provide relief to a person, but no relief is sufficient, it can pass an elaborate order going beyond all these writs. In other words, there is nothing impossible under Article 13. These are not my words. When Hadia case, the historic Hadia case was being heard by Supreme Court, you might have read about the case in newspapers and all. The right of a person to choose his or her life partner. The Hadia case was being heard by Supreme Court. Uh, the then Chief Justice Deepak Mishra asked Fali Nariman, who happens to be a great constitutional scholar, who was sitting in the courtroom for his own case. He was waiting for his turn. Cases are called by item numbers. So 31, 32, 33, likewise. So he was waiting for his own turn. And uh, Chief Justice asked him about the limits of the powers of Supreme Court under Article 32. Is there any limit to the power of Supreme Court under Article 32? Was a question asked by Justice Deepak Mishra. And uh, Nariman was quick to respond with his memorable expression that there is no no under Article 32. There is no no under Article 32 means, according to him, there is nothing which is impossible under Article 32. You see what happened in 99, the Constitution Amendment Act, or what is known as NJAC case. Parliament amended the Constitution. 
to replace collegial system with a mechanism known as NJAC. And what happened? All the state legislators ratified the amendment. Parliament unanimously passed the amendment. In other words, people of the country, they stood in unison in saying that collegium must go and then JAC must come. Afterwards, a few lawyers of Supreme Court only filed a case before the Supreme Court under Article 32, whose fundamental rights were getting up. If collegium was replaced by NJAC, as they claimed, lawyers' right to practice was it getting affected? No. Nobody's fundamental right was in fact getting affected, as central government told the Supreme Court. But still, five judges of Supreme Court, a five-judge bench, declared the entire amendment as null and void. As a result of which collegium got revived back. NJAC judgment was passed under Article 32. And surprisingly, Mr. Nariman was the lawyer who argued against NJAC before Supreme Court. So he could say with most conviction that there is no no under Article 32. <laughs> because in his own case, that a Constitution Amendment Act got declared null and void in its entirety. That's not the greatness of the court. That's the greatness of the people of the country. That whatever order you are passing is getting accepted and it's getting respected. That, that shows the resilience of our rule of law. To what extent the rule of law is embedded in our socio-political psyche. In Pakistan it could not have happened. Or in any South Asian country it could not have happened. India it could happen. Not because of the greatness of the court, but because of the greatness of the people. In individual cases, you may be disobeying law. You may be inclined to jump a red light. But these are all petty things. Beyond that, you have deep deference. We the people have deep deference to the salient values of law. That is why in our personal lives, we may be occasionally fallible. But the system has deep respect towards rule of law. There is no limit to the power of Supreme Court under Article 32 of the Constitution. Over a period of time, over decades, the frontiers of Article 32 got broadened as a result of which there came public interest litigation, there came judicial review of even constitutional amendment. So this is the power of Supreme Court. Then comes original suit. Very simple. You got into a dispute with your neighbor. Your neighbor tells that the land on which your residence is situated, your house home is situated, that belongs to him. So you are under the threat of a neighborly invasion. At any time your neighbor can enter your property and can have claim on your assets. So what will you do? You will run to the neighbor neighborhood civil court seeking an order of injunction to prevent your neighbor from entering your property. So the dispute between two individuals is getting settled before the nearby civil court. You just transplant this dispute to the national level where parties are not individuals but the units of the federation. 
and in that case, Su Supreme Court will become the trial court. The case which will be filed would be before the Supreme Court in case of such a dispute. And that results in a rare situation of Supreme Court sitting as the trial court. Supreme Court becoming a trial court. Like your neighbor's neighborhood civil court. Supreme Court will be that the same petition will be filed in Supreme Court. Parties will be different, but the same petition. Supreme Court will be examining the witnesses. The same procedure which you will witness in your neighborhood court will be there witnessed in Supreme Court. Under Article 131 of the Constitution, Supreme Court has original and exclusive jurisdiction to adjudicate three types of disputes. Original and exclusive jurisdiction to adjudicate three types of disputes. Number one, dispute between union on the one side and one or more states on the other. Union on the one side and one or more states on the other. Number two, between union and one or more states on the one side and one or more states on the other. Between union and one or more states on the one side and one or more states on the other. Number three, between two or more states. Or possible permutations are classified into three categories. And be aware, union territories are not mentioned here. Union territories are not mentioned here means if Delhi government has some problem with central government, they can't go to Supreme Court under Article 131. Union territories do not share federal relationship with central government. As a result of which, Delhi Chief Minister can approach or Delhi authorities can approach Delhi High Court under Article 226. Or they may approach even Supreme Court under Article 32. However, usually Supreme Court in that case would tell the party to go to the High Court first. Even though Article 32 makes it obligatory on Supreme Court to protect fundamental rights. But in practice, the court would ask why the person did not approach the nearby High Court. Instead came directly to Supreme Court. So, unless the life and liberty of a person is patently affected, the court would say, would ask the person to approach High Court first. Or it should be a case like this, wherein more than one state is involved, so that a single High Court can't have jurisdiction over that issue. So, if such a person approaches Supreme Court, in such a case, Supreme Court entertains case under Article 33. So even if Delhi government or Delhi authorities approach Supreme Court under Article 32, Supreme Court would tell Delhi government to approach High Court under Article 226. Anyways, the short message here is very clear that under Article 131, a union territory cannot approach Supreme Court. Only these three categories are covered by Article 131.
original and exclusive jurisdiction. Now a question naturally comes. What type of a case can be taken to Supreme Court under Article 131? What would be the nature of such a case? Supreme Court in what is known as State of Rajasthan versus Union of India. Okay, for making you better comprehend, let me tell you a little of that case as well. After Indira Gandhi government was thrown out post-emergency election, Janata Party government gave and the new union law minister sent a letter to chief ministers of 11 Congress ruled states requesting them to advise governor to dissolve state legislative assembly in the light of what happened in Lok Sabha election by which people outrightly rejected Congress party. So, state chief ministers were asked by union law ministry to advise governor to dissolve legislative assembly to ascertain the fresh will of the people. Lok Sabha election only happened and every legislative assembly has its term, isn't it? So state of Rajasthan was being ruled by Congress party which got offended. Rajasthan went to Supreme Court under Article 131 and uh, what happened thereafter was that all Congress chief ministers, Congress ruled states, they also approached the Supreme Court. So the case was referred to a constitution bench. So in this case, State of Rajasthan versus Union of India, 1977, Supreme Court asked, what are you challenging before Supreme Court? So Rajasthan said, we are challenging this letter. Letter? How can you challenge a letter? A letter is a piece of communication. If you don't want to advise governor, don't advise, what else? How can a letter be binding on you? A direction under Article 256 can be binding. I am sure that you read interstate relations. A direction under Article 257 can be binding. What is 257? What is 256? These are all constitutional fundamentals. Establish a interstate uh, uh, council. These two provisions are, you know, those vital strings that bind us together as a country. Uh, 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 Executive powers of the states can act in accordance that they do not diminish the power of the union of the Yeah, broadly what you say is not incorrect, but it should be specific. 256 and 257. <coughs> Under Article 256, executive power of every state shall be exercised in such a way that it wouldn't be violate you of parliamentary laws. Under Article 257, executive power of every state shall be exercised in such a way that it would not impede with the executive power of union. For example, if a union minister is prohibited from entering a state territory in course of discharge of his official functions, or duties, then central government can issue a direction to state government to open up its territory 
to enable the minister to enter its territory. If the state fails to do that, then president's rule can be imposed. There is no appeal against that. State government can be dismissed. So a direction under Article 256, a direction under Article 257, these are all binding. You can challenge it. But what is the letter? If you don't want to advise, don't advise. What else? So Supreme Court laid down the law that what can be challenged under Article 131? What can be taken to Supreme Court under Article 131? Shall either be a question of law or it shall be a question of fact. And political controversies having nothing legal or factual to be adjudicated cannot be agitated in Supreme Court. So what Supreme Court referred as doctrine of political question. Doctrine of political question means political controversies having nothing legal or factual to be adjudicated. The doctrine of political question is of no relevance to the jurisdiction under Article 131 of the Constitution. So what can be taken to Supreme Court under Article 131 shall either be a question of law or it shall be a question of fact. Well, there are certain exceptions to the original jurisdiction. What are those exceptions? Let me tell you by examples. You are aware that over 500 princely states signed instrument of accession which resulted in Union of India. Suppose a great grandson of one of such kings today approached the Supreme Court telling that my great grandfather was kept at gunpoint and he was forced to sign instrument of accession. He was not willing, but he was, barrel was kept on his temple and he was told that he would be shot dead if he didn't sign. So it was not voluntary. So this particular instrument of accession is illegal. Perhaps grandson might bring some evidence as well reliable. Like you see this photograph, Gandhi's being kept at the temple of my great grandfather. He happened to be an official of Indian military. See, Union Home Minister standing next to him. So, if all such uh, evidence gets, gets produced before the court, the court may declare this particular instrument of accession as null and void. And what would be the consequence? Many such people will reach Supreme Court. Give back my grandfather's kingdom as well. As a result of India will get balkanized. Constituent Assembly was well aware of such possibilities. So, under Article 131, it specified that pre-constitutional agreements and treaties cannot be adjudicated by Supreme Court. So, that happens to be the first exception. Pre-constitutional agreements and treaties. And what is its implication? When it comes to pre-constitutional agreements and treaties, it is for the executive, it's for the executive to interpret and appreciate the meaning of the provisions of such agreements in the light of national interest, what it considers as national interest. Court has no adjudicatory power. 
So pre-constitutional agreements and treaties, that happens to be the first exception. If president gets into a doubt, if he needs some advice, he can consult the Supreme Court, seeking the advice of Supreme Court, in which case Supreme Court must give its advice, even though president is not bound by the advice. So pre-constitutional agreements and treaties. Secondly, nature never knew that India would become a federation on fine day. So it bestowed the landmass with large number of rivers of continental length. Constituent Assembly was well aware that we are going to be a federation and these politicians are so petty that they will start fighting over these river waters. How can river waters be adjudicated as simple legal questions? Such disputes be adjudicated as simple legal issues? How can the state of Uttarakhand be allowed to claim the entire water of Ganga due to the single reason that the mighty Ganga originates in the soil of Uttarakhand? That cannot be permitted because the rest of North India will remain in penury. If state of Karnataka wants to have a greater claim on Kaveri water, can it be allowed, disregardful of how it would be impacting Indian citizens living in Tamil Nadu, who for decades were dependent on, depending on or dependent on the waters of Kaveri for their subsistence, <coughs> livelihood and progress. So these are not small issues which can be simply adjudicated. Perhaps the economic dimension may have to be looked into. Agrarian dimension may have to be looked into. How irrigation may get affected. So multiple issues are there to be considered. So Article 262, recognizing the complexities of such issues. Article 262, empowered parliament to provide for the resolution of interstate river water disputes and constitution article 262 also empowered parliament to exclude the jurisdiction of supreme court by enacting such a law article 262 empowered parliament to enact law for providing the resolution of such interstate river water disputes and by such law, Parliament could even exclude the jurisdiction of Supreme Court. Now some of you may think as to how Kaveri dispute could reach Supreme Court. Kaveri award was passed in 2007 and some of the state parties, Karnataka, Kerala and Pondicherry, they approached the Supreme Court under Article 136 of the Constitution. Central government raised objection that you can't hear this case. But Supreme Court went ahead hearing the case. And in 2018, Supreme Court pronounced the judgment in Kaveri case. So you have this genuine question certainly in your mind. At least some of you will be thinking. If constitution provided for the exclusion of Supreme Court's jurisdiction, how can Kaveri dispute be agitated before Supreme Court? You see, Article 262 only empowered the parliament to enact law. 
Well, Parliament subsequently enacted law in 1956. River Water Dispute Act was passed under which President was empowered to constitute a river water dispute tribunal to adjudicate any such dispute and under the act president can constitute a three member tribunal comprising of sitting or retired supreme court and high court judges so the law empowered president to constitute a three member tribunal comprised of sitting or retired supreme court and high court judges to adjudicate any such dispute The original scheme was perhaps a broader body. Constituent assemblies thought that parliament by law would provide a broader body. However, parliament by law only provided a judge alone body in the sense that sitting or retired judges of Supreme Court and High Courts would only be the members of the tribunal. Under section 11 of River Water Dispute Act 1956, the jurisdiction of Supreme Court got excluded. It was excluded in relation to a dispute which is referred by President to the Tribunal. So, Supreme Court's jurisdiction got excluded by way of Section 11. So, here comes second exception. Article 262 read with Section 11 of River Water Dispute Act. We will specifically take up an answer as to how Supreme Court would interfere with Kaveri Award. In 2018, Supreme Court modified the Kaveri Award, taking note of the drinking water requirements of the residents of Bangalore City. We will see as to how Supreme Court would interfere in the face of the prohibition given by Article. 262 and the prohibition imposed by section 11 of River Water Dispute Act. But after a few minutes, we'll examine that. So, the first is pre constitutional agreements and treaties. The second is Article 262, read with section 11 of River Water Dispute Act. Thirdly, the matters referred to the Finance Commission under Article 218. That also cannot be agitated before Supreme Court. Matters referred to the Finance Commission. Under Article 280. Whatever shall have to be given as terms of reference of Finance Commission. That will have to be decided by Central Government. Nobody can compel Central Government to give X, Y, and Z as the terms of purpose. It's a decision of central government. You can't agitate before, no state can take it to Supreme Court. So, original suits. Then comes transfer jurisdiction. Very simple, it has two dimensions. Okay, before that, let me ask you two questions. You'll find answers to these questions. You may have heard about disproportionate assets case against former Tamil Nadu Chief Minister Jayalalitha. 
and this case, its trial got commenced in Tamil Nadu, but was later shifted to Karnataka by Supreme Court order. So, question is, how could Supreme Court transfer the trial in disproportionate assets case from Tamil Nadu to Karnataka? Second question, how in recent this Katua murder come, I'm sorry, rape come murder case, the child's case, how that trial could be transferred from Jammu to Patan Court in Punjab? Under which provision of the constitution the transfer took place? Questions are different and answers are also entirely different in relation to these two questions. We'll come to know about it once we examine transfer rules issue. Article 139 capital A talks about two types of transfers. 139 capital A clause 1 and 139 capital A clause 2. Clause 1 is about Supreme Court telling a high court that you give your case to me, let me decide. In other words, Supreme Court transferring a case pending before one or more high courts to itself. If the case contains a question of law of general importance which needs to be decided by Supreme Court, the power of Supreme Court to transfer a case pending before one or more high courts to itself. If the case contains a substantial question of law of general importance which needs to be decided by Supreme Court. There are three ways to such a transfer. Number one, on the request of Attorney General for India. Number two, on the request of any of the parties to the case. Number three, the court by suo voto can take up such transfer. The court by its own motion can transfer such a case. You see a case is pending in Supreme Court. A question of law is to be answered. Same case is pending there in Madras High Court or Calcutta High Court, wherever it is. If Supreme Court and High Courts are parallelly hearing the case, one or more High Courts, if Supreme Court and High Courts are parallelly hearing the same issue, who knows, High Court decision may be against Supreme Court decision. So in such a case, Supreme Court can transfer those cases to itself so that Supreme Court can conclusively answer the question of law. So, transferring to itself is the first limb of transfer jurisdiction. Now, coming to the second limb. Transferring from one high court to another high court in the interest of justice. Supreme Court has the power to transfer a case pending in one high court to another high court in the interest of justice. For example, both the parties may be residing in Maharashtra, but for giving trouble to one of them, the other party filed the case in Calcutta. 
the, this person may not be able to travel to Calcutta on account of some physical disability. So, for the sake of justice, this person can approach Supreme Court. Please transfer the case from Calcutta High Court to Bombay High Court in the interest of justice. The court has the power to do such transfer. So the first is about High Court to Supreme Court. The second is about one High Court to another High Court. Now coming to Jayalalitha assets case, disproportionate assets case. How the transfer happened? <coughs> you see, Constitution does not talk about transferring a trial case. 139A is silent in this regard. However, under Article 138 of the Constitution, Parliament has the power to enlarge the jurisdiction of Supreme Court by enacting law. Parliament can enlarge the jurisdiction of Supreme Court by enacting law. And Parliament by law, that is Criminal Procedure Code of 1973, Parliament by law enlarged the jurisdiction of Supreme Court in relation to criminal trial under section 406 of criminal procedure court a criminal trial can be transferred from one state to another by Supreme Court in the interest of justice so interstate transfer of criminal cases can be done only by Supreme Court so article 139 capital A clause 2 the scope of this clause 2 was expanded by way of parliamentary law so under section 406 of criminal procedure code the trial was transferred from Tamil Nadu to Karnataka and what about this Kadua murder case how the trial got transferred be aware that article 139 capital A was added by 42nd amendment right as a result of which it does not have extension to Jammu and Kashmir so transfer jurisdiction is not applicable to Jammu and Kashmir as the provision was subsequently incorporated in the constitution I remember a case coming up in Supreme Court a few years back. A writ petition was filed seeking a judicial extension of Article 139 Capital A to Jammu and Kashmir. For example, who knows, there will come a case like this that some so-called separatists might get implicated in a criminal case in Bombay or elsewhere. Those people may not be able to travel and defend their side on account of local problems or vice versa. Some mainland Indian politician may be intentionally getting implicated in a criminal case in a Srinagar court. He may not be able to safely be there at the court to defend his case. So according to the petitioner, such situations require Supreme Court to exercise its transfer jurisdiction. So that to a third place or to a second place, where are the these? The trial can be transferred. 
So the Red Petitioner demanded a judicial order for extending 139 capital A to Jammu and Kashmir, which is not otherwise extended to Jammu and Kashmir. The case was referred to a constitution bench. And Supreme Court said they don't have power to extend it by a judicial order. But doesn't matter if somebody is getting affected, he or she can come to Supreme Court under Article 32. In such a given case, Supreme Court, after considering the facts of the case, may invoke Article 142 to do the transfer, the power to do complete justice. Doesn't matter. If 139 capital A is not there, well, Article 32 is there. You approach, you can approach Supreme Court under Article 32. In such a given case, the court can invoke Article 142 to transfer such a case. I cited this example to make you precisely aware of a very, very meaningful use of Article 141. What does ideally it means by power to do complete justice. So can a litigant be told, sorry, we don't have power. You suffer there in Srinagar or in Bombay. We don't have power. Even if there is no constitutionally granted power otherwise, the court can invoke Article 140. Katwa trial was transferred from Jammu to Pathan Court in Punjab under Article 142 of the Constitution. So invoking its special power. Then comes election jurisdiction. Very simple. Any dispute that arises out of the election of president or vice president can be adjudicated only by Supreme Court. Supreme Court has exclusive jurisdiction to adjudicate the disputes arising out of the election of President or Vice President. Since President's powers are taught, already these things were taught, so we don't need to dwell much on that. A simple question, who can file such a case? A member of Parliament. Parties affected and voters. Parties affected means who is the party affected? Yes, a candidate. Okay. Apart from that, voters. Voters means members of the electoral college. Is it? How many of them? Neither one, nor two, nor three, nor five. How many of them? At least 20 members of the electoral college. Either a candidate or at least 20 members, not less than 20 members. Under Supreme Court rules 2013, not less than 20 members of the electoral college or a candidate can approach Supreme Court. And in such a case, the petition will be listed before a bench consisting of not less than bench consisting of not less than five judges. So, what is known as a constitution bench? Constitution bench is an informal expression. It is nowhere written in the constitution. A bench comprising of, consisting of not less than five judges 
is usually referred as a constitution bench. Article 145, clause 3 of the constitution says that a substantial question of law regarding the interpretation of the constitution shall have to be heard by a bench comprising of not less than five judges. So any substantial question of law regarding the interpretation of the constitution shall have to be heard by a bench consisting of not less than five judges. So that bench consisting of not less than five judges is known as constitution bench. So it's relatively an informal expression. It's not been mentioned in the constitution. And how a constitution bench gets constituted? Usually, of course, it's always constituted by chief justice, but usually such a such a constitution happens by way of reference. By way of reference means uh, now this uh, entry of women in mosque. That case will be heard by a two-judge bench. If they feel that this is to be this Sabarimala judgment's correctness, if they doubt, they can refer the case to a larger bench. So that Chief Justice can constitute a five-judge bench or a seven-judge bench to decide this case in the light of Sabarimala judgment. So in course of that, a larger bench may overrule Sabarimala judgment. So, a substantial question of law as to the interpretation of the constitution, if, if such a question is not yet answered till date, then it may it, it will have to be heard and decided by a bench consisting of not less than five judges. Usually, such constitution of a bench happens by way of reference means by way of a judicial order, the file gets placed before Chief Justice and Chief Justice constitutes a larger bench. Apart from that, Chief Justice by exercising his own power as the master of the roster can decide on the number of judges as well as who all judges are to hear a particular case. So he can directly constitute a five-judge bench or a seven-judge bench or a nine-judge bench to hear a particular case. For example, you are aware of Ayodhya case. Last year, a judgment was passed by Supreme Court in response to a petition filed that Ayodhya appeal may be heard by a bench consisting of five judges. So this was the prayer. However, Supreme Court by judgment rejected that prayer. Telling that Ayodhya case is just a civil appeal, it does not have any constitutional question to be decided. It does not require five judges to hear the case. So the prior was rejected. However, when that judge chief justice retired, then came the next chief justice who was to constitute the bench to hear the case. However, the new chief justice constituted a five-judge bench. By his discretion, even though by a judgment that a prior had been rejected by Supreme Court itself. But the power of the Chief Justice to decide on the strength of the bench, 
judges, strength of the bench by deciding the number of judges that remains unfettered. So Chief Justice might have thought that when Ayodhya case is heard by Supreme Court, it shall not be under the fetters of the 1994 judgment of Supreme Court in the Ismail Faruqi case, wherein the court held that mosque is not integral to the practice of Islam. So Chief Justice might have thought perhaps, it's all conjectures perhaps, that uh, Ayodhya case shall have to be freely heard without this legal burden looming over the head of the bench. So he, by his power, constituted a constitution bench, a bench consisting of five judges to hear Ayodhya case. Well, this is all about constitution bench. Original jurisdiction we discussed. Now comes appellate jurisdiction. Very simple. There are we can understand it by dividing it into three. Appeals which are coming to Supreme Court can be broadly divided into three. The first I will refer as right. Right means as a matter of right, appeal can be filed. Then the second informally I call as grace. Grace means not as a matter of right, but it is a discretion of the court. Then the third I refer as statute. Right, grace, and statute. Right means these are constitutionally permitted appeals. Appeals which are constitutionally provided. You can file case as a matter of right. There are three provisions, Article 132, 133 and 134. 132, 133 and 134. Very simple, just listen. Under Article 132, an appeal can be filed in Supreme Court against a judgment or final order passed by a High Court in a civil, criminal or any other case provided the High Court certifies that the case contains a substantial question of law as to the interpretation of the Constitution which needs to be heard by, needs to be decided by Supreme Court. So High Court is, yeah, two things are there important. Number one, the nature of the case. It can be a civil, criminal or any other case. Number two, the High Court certifies that the case contains a substantial question of law as to the interpretation of the Constitution. So what happens is this, that usually the High Court hears the case and decides it. After that, a party can approach the High Court by filing an application seeking a certificate so that after such hearing, a certificate may or may not be granted. Once such a certificate is there, on the basis of that certificate, appeal can be filed. Sometimes during the hearing of the case itself, certificate is asked by the lawyer in case the case is dismissed. His case is rejected. So, 
either become a sort of judgment or separately. Certificate is not usually granted. It's a very, very rare thing. And these days, certificate is not usually asked also. That is a different thing on account of non-branding. Usually, certificates are not asked. So, two things. It is either a civil, criminal or any other proceeding. That means, irrespective of the nature of the proceeding, High Court gives a certificate that this case contains a substantial question of law as to the interpretation of the Constitution. This is 132. Now, coming to 133, there are two differences and only two differences. Number one, under Article 133, it's a civil case. Earlier it was civil, criminal or any other case. Under Article 133, it's a civil case. Number two, High Court would certify that the case contains a substantial question of law of general importance which may be decided by Supreme Court. Not constitutional question, instead substantial question of law of general importance which may be decided by Supreme Court. Then comes Article 134. Again, two differences. Only two differences. Number one. It is a criminal case. Number two. Nature of the certificate. The High Court would certify that this case is fit to be appealed before Supreme Court. It's a good case. It is fit to be appealed before Supreme Court. It's a case fit to be appealed before Supreme Court. And there is an exception to this. Wherever High Court directly gives death sentence to somebody for the first time, then for approaching Supreme Court, you don't need certificate. Under Article 134, appeal will lie before Supreme Court. Whenever High Court gives death sentence to somebody directly, then you don't need a certificate under Article 134. So, 132, 133, 134. By and large, these appeals will lie by the key of certificate. Number one, constitutional cases. Number two, civil cases. Number three, criminal cases. Then comes, so if certificate is not given, then still you can reach Supreme Court. You are not denied the way, still you can reach Supreme Court. How? By way of Article 136 of the Constitution, which talks about appeal by special leave, means leave petition. Under Article 136, Supreme Court has the special power. Supreme Court has the power to entertain appeal in its discretion. It has the power to entertain appeal in its discretion against a judgment or order passed by any court or tribunal in the territory of India except 
those constituted under a law relating to armed forces. We will examine as to how and why armed forces are excluded. But after a few minutes. Under Article 136, it's very simple. The court has the power. It is a discretionary power. It has the power to entertain appeal in its discretion against a judgment or order passed by any court or tribunal in the territory of India, except those constituted under a law relating to armed forces. Be aware that 70% of the cases which come to Supreme Court, they come under Article 136. I began with Dr. Manmohan Singh reaching Supreme Court. He came under Article 136. And 70% of those cases, out of 70%, 70% of them, they are dismissed at the threshold itself. The court may hear a case for one minute or two minutes, sometimes even less than, 30, less than 10 seconds. So nobody can compel the court to hear. It is a discretionary jurisdiction. So it is ironically said that Supreme Court is a court of dismissal than a court of audience. Nobody can compel the court to hear because itself is a discretionary jurisdiction. It's, it's a power of the court in fact. Unlike the first case where it is, where it is a constitutional duty of the court to hear. It's a power to be exercised in its discretion. Now let me answer as to how Supreme Court would interfere in Kaveri case. Kaveri award was given in 2007 and as I told you, when the state parties approached the Supreme Court, central government raised an objection that Supreme Court cannot decide on Kaveri award because the jurisdiction of Supreme Court got excluded by parliamentary law as authorized under Article 262 of the Constitution. So the court cannot, could not, the court could not hear the case. And the court said no, it had the power to hear. And in 2018, Kaveri award was modified by Supreme Court. Supreme Court interfered with the award, modified by Supreme Court. Taking note of the drinking water requirements of the people of Bangalore city. Now the core constitutional question is, how could Supreme Court interfere in the face of constitutional prohibition as effectuated by section 11 of the water dispute act. For understanding this judgment of 2018, you have to have a look at Another judgment of Supreme Court in 2017, in, the, in, in a case having, having the same title, State of Karnataka versus State of Tamil Nadu, 2017. By this judgment, Supreme Court decided as to how it could interfere with the case or whether it has the power to interfere with the Kaveri award in the face of Article 11 and sorry, Section 11 of the 1956 Act. By a very imaginative interpretation, Supreme Court uh, 
said that, well, Article 262 conferred complete power on Parliament to exclude the jurisdiction of Supreme Court completely. However, Parliament did not completely exclude. As the text of Article, as text of Section 11 says that a dispute which is referred to the President to the Tribunal shall stand excluded from the jurisdiction of Supreme Court. So once President refers a matter to the Tribunal, thereafter only Supreme Court's jurisdiction <coughs> gets excluded. And the court said that a dispute remains a dispute only till it is adjudicated. Once it is adjudicated, it will no more be a dispute. It will just become an award. Correctness of the award can be challenged under Article 136. So a very, very interesting interpretation. A dispute remains a dispute in law till it is adjudicated. Once it is adjudicated, there is no dispute. Then what is left in it is award, that is the decision. Correctness of the decision, you can challenge before Supreme Court under Article 136 of the Constitution. So, the court said that it had the power to adjudicate. And the 2018 judgment followed the 2017 decision. Now comes the third category, statute. By the way, there is a difference between 132, 133 and 134 on the one side and 136 on the other. 132, 133 and 134 pertains to high court decisions. Under Article 136, courts and tribunals means any court. Tribunal means any tribunal. So 136 is broader. Likewise, under 132, 133 and 134, only judgment or final order can be challenged. But under Article 136, any order can be challenged. Even an interim order can be challenged. Or even a summons issued can be challenged. So the scope of Article 136 is far broader. However, it is a discretionary power. Then comes the next category, statute. You may have heard uh, that art of living was penalized by National Green Tribunal for allegedly contaminating Yamuna River Bank. And art of living did not make the payment. Instead, art of living challenged the, the challenge to the decision not before Delhi High Court but before Supreme Court. How could art of living go to Supreme Court? Because under Section 22 of National Green Tribunal Act of 2010, a decision, an order passed by National Green Tribunal can be appealed only before Supreme Court. Supreme Court is only appellate authority against a National Green Tribunal decision under Section 22 of NGT Act of 2010. So this is an example of statutory appeal. If Parliament by law provides for appeal to the Supreme Court, it becomes statutory appeal. Now let me tell you as to why from the jurisdiction of Article 136, armed forces were excluded. 
constitution thought that when it comes to armed forces, since they are governed by distinct parliamentary laws, Article 136 shall not be made applicable. In which case, when such a proceeding, for example, court martial proceeding, when such a thing gets initiated, an army officer will be directly able to go to Supreme Court immediately afterwards. So it was thought that let Parliament by law decide as to how and when a person can approach appeal court. Since armed forces are governed by distinct parliamentary laws, let Parliament by law decide. Let Article 136 be not extended to armed forces. Hence, 136 jurisdiction was excluded in relation to armed forces. So, right, grace or discretion, then statute. Now comes advisory jurisdiction under Article 143, clause 1 of the Constitution. President has the power to seek the opinion of Supreme Court, has the power to seek the advice of Supreme Court on a question of law or fact. On a question of law or fact of public importance. So that is what is important here, of public importance. It can be a question of law, it can be a question of fact, but it shall have to be of public importance. And the provision further says that of public importance which has arisen or which is likely to arise. You see how time and time dimension is addressed here. Something which has happened or is likely to happen and the court after conducting such hearing as it may think fit, after conducting such hearing as it may think fit, shall report to president. However, that report may or may not contain an advice. So it is a marriage of mutual convenience. President can seek the advice of Supreme Court. Supreme Court may give its advice. Even if advice is given, President may listen to the advice. Nobody is bound by anything. Pure mutual convenience. Under Article 143, President has the power, of course it's a power, power to consult Supreme Court on a question of law or fact, but of public importance, which has arisen or is likely to arise in the future. And the court, after conducting such hearing as it may think fit, may advise president. After conducting such hearing means, every such hearing shall have to be conducted in open court, shall have to be conducted in open court, and such an advice is also pronounced by a judgment in open court. So there is nothing like court secretly advising government. No. Like every case is heard, a presidential reference is also heard. And thereafter, a judgment is passed after which the office of the court will send a communique to president, will send a report to president. That report may or may not contain an advice. However, if the question sought 
is on a pre-constitutional agreement or treaty, then the court shall give its advice. Otherwise, it is not mandatory that the court shall give advice. Though a report is given, hearing will have to be conducted. But whether the judgment of the court shall contain, or, uh, contain an advice or not, that is for the court to decide. So far, 15 references are made. The last one pertains to 2G spectrum case. And be aware that a case which is already adjudicated by Supreme Court cannot be plucked back to Supreme Court with an objective, with an aim to get over the judgment. So whatever is adjudicated will become final. You can't get over a judgment by way of a presidential reference. However, if the judgment itself gives rise to certain legal issues which were not considered, then president is well within his power to seek the opinion of the court and the court may give its opinion. For example, after 2G spectrum judgment was passed, some 122 uh, spectrum licenses were cancelled. So government wanted to know whether this will be applicable to other natural resources as well, 2G spectrum judgment. So quite a few questions were raised and the court said no, this will be applicable only to 2G spectrum, not to all natural resources. So a judgment can't be got over by way of a presidential reference. However, if the judgment gives rise to similar legal issues or questions, clarification can be sought. Even then, it is not compulsory for a court to give its opinion. Even though the opinion given by Supreme Court will not be binding on government, the opinion rendered by Supreme Court will be binding law on all courts of the country. The legal principles contained in its opinion will be binding law under Article 141 of the Constitution, which says that the law declared by Supreme Court is binding on all courts. On executive, it is not binding, but on judiciary, it will be the law declared under Article 141. Then comes review jurisdiction. To err is humane, but to rectify is divine. Till Supreme Court, you can have a hope that there is one court above it. But since Supreme Court is supreme, there is no court beyond the Supreme Court. Constitution thought to confirm it this power to review its own orders and judgments. So under Article 137 of the Constitution, Supreme Court has the power to review its own orders and judgments in accordance with the rules laid down by the court with the consent of president. There was an American, there was a, there was a judge of American Supreme Court, Justice Robert Jackson, in 1940s, in one of his noted judgments, he wrote that, we are final, and just communicating the essence of what he wrote, we are final, not because we are infallible, but simply because we are final. In other words, yeah, final means the aura of infallibility associated with Supreme Court judgment is due to the fact that there is no court beyond the Supreme Court. We are final, but fallible. It's not that we are final and we are infallible. We are final, but fallible. There is no court above that. So
So taking note of the fallibility of human judgments, Article 137 confers this power on Supreme Court to review its own judgments and orders. Such a review petition under Supreme Court rules shall be filed in 30 days and shall be listed before the same judges who heard the case and decided the case. The petition will be listed in the chambers of the judges. Listed in the chambers of the judges means as far as practicable there shall be no oral argument or open court hearing. But in a given case after examining after examining the review petition in the chamber if the court decides to hear it in open court, it can hear it in open court. Oral argument also may be permitted. But in general, most of the review petitions are heard and decided in the chambers only. However, a review petition on death sentence shall be heard in open court, that too, by a bench consisting of not less than three judges and limited oral argument also shall be allowed. So this is an exception to the general rule that review petition shall be circulated in the chambers and will be decided without any oral argument. Review petition on death sentence shall be heard in open court. And a review, why you may be thinking why a review is not heard in open court. You see, a review is not an appeal against the Supreme Court judgment. It is not an infra-court appeal. You can't appeal against the Supreme Court decision before Supreme Court. Review means it is review to bring to the notice of the court any apparent error on the face of the judgment. So if the judgment itself is having an apparent error, an error apparent, then it can be brought to the notice of the court. The purpose of review is very, very limited to rectify an error apparent, not anywhere on the judgment, but on the face of the judgment. In the sense that, if there is a vital flaw in the decision making, that becomes very, very apparent, that only can be rectified. Every high court also has review jurisdiction, but not conferred by the constitution, but under the rules framed for itself by the high courts. Constitution confers review for only on Supreme Court. Now, if error remains even after the review stage, naturally, what is the way out will be a question which is there. Be aware, beyond review, no stage is contemplated, neither under the constitution nor under Supreme Court rules. Review is the final stage. However, in 2002, by a master stroke of judicial pen, in a case titled Rupa Ashokura, versus Ashokura, 2002. So a constitution bill of Supreme Court, Rupa Ashokura versus Ashokura. In this case, a constitution bill of Supreme Court ruled that even beyond review, Supreme Court can entertain. Supreme Court has the power to entertain curative petition beyond the review stage. For what purpose? to prevent the abuse of the process of the court. If court process itself is getting abused, then court has the power to hear curative petition to prevent the abuse of the process of the court as well as to 
as well as to cure gross miscarriage of justice for curing the gross miscarriage of justice and there are two grounds specified for curative petition the first ground is violation of principles of natural justice so if principles of natural justice gets violated number two failure of a judge to disclose his interest in one of the parties to the case so judge having shares in reliance industries is hearing a case in which Mugesh Ambani is a party he doesn't disclose it so it results in judicial bias so as a matter of fact what the judgment says is failure of a judge to disclose his interest in one of the parties to the case so two grounds principles of natural justice getting violated then failure of a judge to disclose his interest in one of the parties to the case in which case curative petition filed on any of these grounds will be circulated in the chambers of the three senior most judges of Supreme Court including Chief Justice. Three senior most judges plus, plus the judges who originally decided the case if they are in service. When it comes to review petition also be aware that review petition gets listed before the same judges. If one of them got retired a new person will come. If both of them are retiring, two new will come. Likewise, when it comes to curative petition, the default bench is three senior most judges plus the judges who originally decided the case if they are in service. If the two judges who originally decided the case, if they got retired, then three senior most judges only will hear the case. If one of them is in service, then three plus one. If both are in service, then 3 plus 2. As far as practicable, there shall be no open court hearing or oral argument. The petition will be circulated in the chambers of three senior most judges. And in Yakub Menon case, Supreme Court clarified that if the original judges got retired, there is no need to include Yakub Memon versus State of Maharashtra 2015 Supreme Court ruled that if the original judges got retired and if the review petition went to two new judges there is no requirement at all to include them in the curative bench Chief Justice plus two senior most judges that is three senior most judges plus the judges who originally decided the case if they are in service Whatever we have discussed could certainly get uploaded on the portal. Right.